Good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit. I'm really glad that you could be with us as we uh, continue this series. This changes everything where we're looking at the resurrection, the belief that Jesus didn't just die, but he's alive. And because he's alive, he's in the business of changing lives today. That truth, if true, is so powerful that it impacts, it changes, it spills into uh, every area of our lives. And as we've been talking about every area of your life Throughout this series, I've been asking you to imagine your life much like a timeline. And no matter your upbringing or your experience or your religious beliefs, we have the same four points on that timeline. We have our past, we have our present, we have our future, and then we have eternity. What we've been saying is the resurrection changes every area of your life. And tonight, we come to discuss, uh, we come to discuss your future. We come to ask the question, uh, how does the resurrection of Jesus practically impact uh, what happens tomorrow and beyond. Um, now, I'm not sure uh, if you've ever taken a public speaking course in college or high school. Actually, my first ever uh, public speaking course happened uh, getting a merit badge in Boy Scouts in about seventh grade. And uh, no matter what sort of experience that is, if you've taken that course, you, you know that they talk about introductions, and they talk about an introduction. The point of an introduction is to get people's attention and help them understand that what you're about to talk about is relevant and important for their lives. And sometimes, I mean, this is really hard to do. Like, what happens if you get assigned what I got assigned in my college debate class on, you know, the migratory pattern of penguins? It, it doesn't really matter, like, what sort of hot sauce you put on the speaking taco. Like, it is not going to go well for you. You're not going to get people's attention. Um, it, it's just not going to happen. But every so often, you get gifted the opportunity to speak about something that is so blatantly relevant for people's lives uh, that it's really not that hard to introduce it. And that's really the beautiful opportunity I'm gifted tonight because we're going to talk about your future. And um, it's your future that I, I really believe that is the area of your life you most want, you most desire for God to change through the resurrection, even if you're here tonight and you're not sure you believe in the resurrection. It's the future, especially the fears and the anxieties that arise when you consider your future and what lays beyond tomorrow, that, that for many of you, this felt need begins to be, to be stirred within your heart and rises to the surface, and you hope that someone or something bigger than yourself can step in and make things right. If you feel that, just, just know you're not even alone. In the United States, I mean, it's interesting because we are healthier wealthier, more secure than pretty much any other nation in world history. And yet this past year, the National Institute of Mental Health said that we as Americans are the most anxious and fearful country in the world. We are a nation full of men and women scared about the future. If you doubt me, I mean, just this past year, we spent more money as Americans on medication and counseling for our anxiety over the future than we did at Starbucks you know this. You, you know when you think about what lies beyond tomorrow, for many of you, fears and anxieties rise. You know what it's like to, to have your entire life feel like nothing but this awful cycle of fear after fear after fear after fear. In fact, our, our lives don't maybe necessarily start that way, but pretty soon they, they get that way. I mean, some of you have young kids, and you know you've seen fears arise from them at a young age, but probably for many of you in your own life, you remember that as you were stepping towards adulthood, you started dealing with a looming question that some of you are still, still dealing with right now. What, what am I going to do with my life? Right? But for some of you, when, when I just ask that question to you, what are you going to do with your life? I mean, all of a sudden, it feels like a 10,000-pound weight has been put on your chest because I'm asking it. Your friends are always asking it. Your parents are always asking it. And 
And you feel the tension, don't you? You feel like, what am I going to do with my degree? Am I going to get that degree? Am I going to finally use my degree? Am I going to finally live in an apartment that is sustainable long-term? And you're tired of showing up for family vacations and holidays and your mom pestering you about what are you going to do with your life? For some of you, you think that, you know, now that you've figured it out, now that you've answered that question, you do know the answer to that You know, you're making the living that you wanted to make, you're making the salary that you wanted to make, you're doing the things you wanted to do, you paid your dues, and so you figure that the fears are gone, you've been the intern, you've been plowed over, you've made the coffee runs, and you think that the fears will subside, but then as soon as those things fade away, as soon as a future challenge has gone, you start wrestling with that haunting interior question. I mean, what, what if this is it? What if I've summited? What if I've plateaued? And even for many of you, you you make good money, you have tremendous influence, you move to the city to advance in your career. And what you're scared of more than anything else is that the responsibility, the pressure, the expectations that you try to carry every single day are going to be with you for the rest of your life. I mean, what's scary to you is you'll never be that intern again who could just disappear and no one would notice, right? It would be completely okay if you disappeared. Some of you, you experience this with your relationships. You, you experience this where you're fine being single, but nobody else around you is okay with you being single. Have you experienced this? Like your, your roommates are all dating, and then they're getting engaged, and then they're getting married, and then they're having kids, and then those people who used to be really good friends, they don't hang out with you anymore, and then they talk about right in front of you how awful the single life is, and you're like, I'm here. I have ears. I can hear what you're saying That's me that you're talking about. That's my life stage. Your mom, when you go home for Christmas, is asking you about your love life. It makes you feel tremendously uncomfortable every single time she asks you that question. And everybody around you is is pushing you and pestering you and, and trying to have you figure out who's the one to the point that you're always wondering, is somebody the one? And you can't even have a conversation with somebody of the opposite sex without thinking in the back of your head, like, I better not mess this up because this could be the one and we could be together for the rest of our lives. Like, you just want to be able to have a cup of coffee without thinking that, don't you? And then for some of you, you've, you've found the one, right? You've gotten married. And then pretty soon, the fears emerge as well as you step into that next stage of your life because pretty soon the one isn't as perfect as you hoped the one would be. And maybe it's not terrible. Maybe it's not awful. Maybe it's just trivial stuff. But there's some fears that go with that. I mean, look, there's, there's always the joking kind of surface-level marital problems we all have. You know, you've had the conversation about where the jackets are going to go, how they're going to be hung up. You've had a dozen conversations, right? We live in Denver. We use a lot of different types of jackets. There's North Faces, Patagonia sprawled everywhere. And, and so you've had the conversation with your husband. No, you know, they, they don't go on the kitchen table. They get hung up this way with the hangers going this way. You've had the conversation. You've been patient. You've not been patient. You've been quiet about it. You've been loud about it. And it's just sort of jokey, surface-level marital issues that you two are having. But be honest. Be honest. There's something beneath the surface that's frightening about that because you start thinking to yourself, like, if you're the one, and if we're going to have kids together, and if I can't even trust you to hang up your jacket when you get home, how are we going to raise a child together? Right? Ladies, okay? Yes, some of you have felt that. And some of you, a few precious ones of you have finally gotten stable in your career, finally gotten stable in your romantic life. You're exactly where you wanted to be, and then you just 
messed it all up. You, you decided to have kids, and you jumped right back into that cycle of fear and anxiety all over again. And, and not only uh, are you back into that cycle of fear and anxiety, but it's actually worse because you have a lot less control this time, don't you? Because it's another human being you can't control. You know, does he get sick as a toddler? Does he make wise decisions as a teenager? Does he marry the right person when he's in his 20s or his 30s? I mean, you could control those decisions for you, and it was stressful enough. All of a sudden, you've got this other person who's your own flesh and blood that you can't control whatsoever. And so for many of you, you know what it's like to have life be nothing but one long cycle of fear and anxiety over the future after another. Life feels a lot like one of those horrible carnival rides that just spins faster and faster and faster and pretty much it exists to make you hurl, right? You hope it would slow down and there's some teenager just pushing the lever to make it go faster and faster. You want to get off. And so for many of you, many of you, this is you. Fear and anxiety over the future, not really sure what to do with those emotions of, of just being frightened on a day in, day out basis, losing sleep, not knowing how to process all of these things in a healthy way. And here's, here's, what, here's what we're going to get tonight. We're going to get a gift. We're going to get a gift from Paul in the Bible where from the passage we just looked at, what he's going to write to is a group of, of young Christians in an urban center, much like the city that we're in right now, dealing with tremendous fears and anxieties over the future. And he's going to say, it's through the resurrection that your future can be changed. That through the... Re- through the resurrection, God's past faithfulness secures a future blessing. And when it's when we understand the future that God has secured, that we can finally begin understanding our own futures and processing our fears and anxieties in a healthy way. And so Paul is going to offer us a gift that will practically impact and change our lives. If you want to look at the passage we just read, we'll jump into it. We'll start in verse 13. Here's what Paul's going to do. Before he just gives a resolution to everything to make everything all better, uh, he's going to first acknowledge our problem, okay? He's going to first acknowledge the problem we all face. And look at verse 13. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And anytime he talks about asleep, that just means uh, a Christian who has died, okay? We don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, Paul was writing this letter uh, to a city, a church in a city called Thessalonica. It's a very large, prominent city. Uh, it still exists today, actually. But in the Roman Empire, it was the capital city uh, of a major region of the Roman Empire called Macedonia. And so uh, we in Denver and Thessalonica have that in common. You know, uh, Denver's not just the capital of Colorado, but it really it's the capital of the entire West. We're the largest city within a 500-mile radius. And so pretty much if you go any direction, north, south, east, or west, people kind of see Denver as a major, major city that they would come to, you know, to go to school, to, 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 to advance in their career. That's the exact same way as Thessalonica. So he's writing to a city just like ours, to people just like us, and what they're wrestling with are fears just like ours as well. It's this young church full of young, hip, urban people. They're new in their faith, right? Many of you, you've become Christians in the last year. They're trying to make sense of, of what's going on in life. And, and here's what happens. They've, they've placed their trust in Jesus. They believed in his death and his resurrection. They believe his death is their death, his victory their victory. It changes everything. They have a hope secure for the future. And all of a sudden, tragedy strikes. And people start to die. And these people try to wrap their minds around, 
How do I make sense of my future fears in light of what God has done? And that's what Paul writes. And, and I love what he writes at the very end of verse uh, 13. He says, I'm writing this that so you may not grieve as others who, do not, who have no hope. That's interesting, isn't it? Because he doesn't say that you shouldn't feel sad you should, as you're wrestling through tragedies or trauma or anxieties or fears. He's not saying you shouldn't fear any of those things. He's saying, look at this, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. Now, what's interesting to me as I was kind of processing this and trying to teach this to myself this week is um, I recognize that I'm very bad at this. Okay, like when uh, tragedy strikes, when fears arise, when anxiety comes, I do not process this in a healthy way whatsoever. And um, I don't think it's just me. I think this is largely a generational thing. I think many of you probably struggle with this as well. And as I was trying to process this, I think there's a couple factors that go into that. I think uh, the first is there's a historical factor. And um, if you study history, what you'll see is our generation is one of the first pretty much ever not to experience personal tragedy on a regular basis. We really are. I mean, generations that preceded us, typically, you know, they knew people who died in wars. They knew people who died because of plagues. I mean, death of somebody who was very, very close to you was a normal rhythm of everyday life. And yes, we're, we're exposed to that, maybe through 24-hour news and things like that. But, but it just hops from tragedy to tragedy that we're so desensitized that it doesn't really impact us very deeply, does it? I mean, for us, not only the very few of us have encounters with consistent, tremendous personal tragedy the way the generation that preceded us did, but, but also, if, if you were raised like me, you were raised to believe that like, nothing will ever go wrong for your life. You, you were raised to believe that you'll never lose, that you'll always win, even if, you're, even if your soccer team was the worst in the rec league, right? Like, you still got a trophy. Even if you lost... Every single game, you still got a scoop of ice cream at the end of every single game. And I'm not hitting ice cream. I love ice cream. But here's the deal. is that what you were bred to believe from a very young age is there are no losers. We're all winners. And that's the way it'll go for the rest of my life. Not just historically, but technologically, it's the same thing. Where technologically, we've been led to believe we can play God because we can control the minutia of our everyday lives. I mean, if you have enough money and kind of technological wherewithal, you can ensure that your car is never cold when you get into it because you can pre-start it, right? From like miles away, you can hit a button on your phone and that thing can start warming up so you don't have to sit on cold leather seats. God, God forbid that. Um, the, the same thing if you go to the grocery store. Let's say you go to the grocery store and you happen to forget, you know, do I have eggs? Do I not have eggs? I mean, you can get an app on your phone that you install that links to a, a, a a video camera that you installed in your fridge that you can access at Safeway or, uns- you know, the unsafe way at Park Avenue West. You can be there at the unsafe way, not know how many uh, eggs you have, and all of a sudden look on your phone, look in your fridge, and see exactly how many you have. You can even do this in terms of controlling the perception of other people, right? I mean, it's called Facebook, and you can, uh, you can put on whatever profile picture you want. You can take that picture as many times from as many different angles with all sorts of lights and filters, and then you can just pretend like, yeah, that's just the way I look all the time. I just look fantastic like that all the time. You can control all of that. And so here's the deal. We're led to believe historically that I am always going to have things go my way. And even when I lose, it's not that big of a deal because everybody wins in the end. I've been raised to believe that technologically I can control everything. I can control anything and everything and make life go exactly the way I want to make life go. And then what happens? Tragedy strikes. Something shakes us and we have no idea what to do, right? 
All of a sudden, bombs go off in the city of Boston. And in spite of all our technological advancements, there was nothing we could do to prevent that. I mean, even days, almost a week of not even having a suspect. Tragedies just yesterday, a shooting down at Civic Center Park at a weed festival. The worst avalanche in Colorado history, at least for the last 50 years, it took five lives. And those tragedies, lives are still lost in spite of all our technological advancements. In your life, a relationship ends even though you don't want a relationship to end and you put everything you could into that relationship to make it work and it didn't do any good. At work, your boss confronts you and many of you are new at your job and you're doing things for the very first time and so you're not excellent at what you're doing yet and all of a sudden a boss calls you into the office and he says to you, if you don't pick it up, it's not going to go well. He doesn't say, if you don't pick it up, you know, we're going to go out for a scoop of ice cream and little man, don't worry about it, it'll be fantastic, right? He says, no, if, if you don't pick it up, that's it. We're going to have to find somebody who can pick it up. And you're left with these tremendous feelings of fear and anxiety, not knowing how to process this, because if you're like me, you've been raised your entire life to believe I'm in control, nothing bad will ever happen to me, and if I want to make something go away, I just click a few buttons and it just disappears. It's the reason for, for many of you, like me, you process these fears in such unhealthy ways, right? For, for some of you, you stuff these feelings away. You just pretend if I don't acknowledge them, then they won't be there and maybe the anxiety will just disappear and go away. For, for others of us, we self-medicate through drugs, sex, alcohol, video games, TV, sports, hoping that we can distract ourselves from the pain. For some of us, we just take inordinate amounts of interest. I mean, this is Denver. We, we take unbelievable amounts of interest in really insignificant hobbies, they're not wrong, and they're not bad, and they're not evil, but they don't, they're not worth you giving your entire life to them. And, and just be honest, there's something that loves being numb to the pain when you're lost in that hobby. It's the reason why, for many of us, we take it out on the people we love the most. I mean, for many of you, it's the reason why your wife is pushing, your kids are are yelling, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, even though things were fine on the surface, you explode, and you say, don't you see what sort of pressure I'm under? Can't you just give me a break? It's the reason why, for some of you, as soon as things get hard with friends and roommates and relationships, you just disappear. You don't fight. You just say, I don't have time for this right now, and you just disappear, and you go somewhere else. It's the reason for some of you in this room you haven't told somebody the truth in about five years of how you're actually doing when they ask you how you're doing. And for all of us, what Paul is diagnosing like a good doctor is the problem that exists within many of us, that, that we do not know how to grieve, process our hurt, feel our feelings, face the future in a healthy way. We don't know how to make sense of this in light of the resurrection. We don't know how to face those in a healthy way. God-honoring, God-exalting way. And so he acknowledges the problem, and he doesn't leave us hopeless because what, what he moves to then is not just acknowledging and, and discerning our problem, but then he, he moves to the hope that we have, okay, the hope that we have. And um, he's going to provide this in uh, verses 14 through 17. Now, I, I'm going to read these in a second, but I just kind of want to uh, say on the front end that what Paul's going to do is provide for you some details of what God is going to do in the future, Okay, that's what he's doing. He's providing some details of what God's going to do in the future. And for all of you, you're probably going to feel like 
this really doesn't matter for your life. Okay, let's just, let's just be honest. Let's just be transparent. You're not going to feel like these are tremendously life-changing truths, uh, but they are, okay? I just want to say that on the front end because what Paul understands is, is a simple life principle. It applies to the entirety of our lives that mystery brings fear, clarity brings confidence, okay? Mystery brings fear, clarity brings confidence. And this is true really for any area of our lives. For example, if you've had a medical issue recently and, um, you know, it's gotten so bad that you finally were willing to go to the doctor, which is pretty bad, right? Um, you know, many of you don't even have health insurance. So th- this is many of you. Uh, you go to the doctor, you pay the bills, you do the blood work, you take off from work, even though you don't even have any vacation time right now, even though you don't have time to take, you, you finally go in and, and the doctor comes to you. And what is the worst thing that doctor could possibly say? I have no idea what it is. Your guess is as good as mine. You know, it could be terminal for all I care. At least tell me what's going on with my body because mystery brings fear, clarity brings confidence. It's the exact same way in a relationship. Many of you, you're in relationships, you know what it's like to get to the point in that relationship that you finally say the most frightening thing that you could ever say, I love you. I love you. I think I, think I, I love you. And you know the worst response you could get to that is, is your significant other saying, thank you, right? Like, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. That was nice of you. You're like, no, 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 no. Like, let's get some clarity. Do you love me as well? Do you want to end this? Don't just leave it there like you appreciated it. No, mystery brings fear. Clarity brings confidence. I, I even remember when I was a kid, um, my family and I would go on long road trips and uh, we would always stop at a gas station. My dad always loved stopping at Exxon's. And uh, we would pull up to the pump. And uh, I, don't know why, uh, I, I don't know why this was so mind-blowing for me. But I would see him, you know, I was trying to be observant as a kid. He would start to fill up the gas tank. And then he would leave, right? And it would, st- it would keep filling up. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? I mean, this was mind-blowing for me. I'm looking at my dad paying for gas and getting peanut M&Ms in the Exxon. I'm seeing the gas tank still fill up, and then it just stops magically, like exactly when it's supposed to stop. And I remember one time my dad, you know, got back in the car, and I just said, how do you do that? And he just jokingly said, it's magic. And uh, to my eight-year-old brain, that was not a joke. That was serious. I was freaking out. Like, what kind of magic? What happens if the magic runs out? Uh, Help me... Help me process this a little bit because mystery brings fear, clarity brings uh, confidence. And so Paul's going to understand it's the exact same way for our futures. For many of us, when we think about our futures, what's so frightening about the future is the unknown, is the potential for a worst-case scenario unfolding. It's just... It's just the fact that we don't know what's going to happen. It's unbelievable. The mystery is unbelievably frightening, isn't it? And he's going to step in, and what he's going to provide is some clarity of what God is going to do in the future through the resurrection. And I want you to look, uh, starting in, starting in verse fourteen, what, what Paul's going to say is that through the resurrection, an unknown future becomes known. Okay, through the resurrection, an unknown future becomes known. And so look at verse 14. Here's what he writes. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again. So do you see that in there? In there he's, he's referencing the death and resurrection of Jesus. He says, we also believe, and here's what he's going to provide, three details of what the future holds. We also believe, so here's one, in the future, The king will return. Look at what he says right after this, that when Jesus returns. So here's the deal, is we believe that because Jesus not 
only died, but he's alive, and he's in the business of changing lives as well. He's able to return and to finish what he started. Think about this, because for, for many of us, we're always longing for somebody to come and to make things right, aren't we? It's the reason. It's the reason why we put inordinate amounts of faith in a pro athlete, hoping that if he can win, for the good of our team winning, then somehow we will experience the victory as well. It's the reason every single election cycle, we see people put ridiculous amounts of faith in that this new elect, newly elected male or female is going to come in and finally fix everything and make everything right. And all of those are mere shadows of the king who is to come. What Paul is saying is that in the future, the king will return. And when the king returns, he will finally make things right. He will finish what he started. He will accomplish the work he promised to accomplish. It'll happen. It'll happen. Second, he says this. In the future, when the king returns, he's also bringing his subjects. He's also bringing his subjects. The the next part of that verse, it says, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. God will bring back with him the believers who have died. So the king is returning with those believers who believe in him and yet have died in the midst of the way. That's why he, he, Paul talks about them being nothing more than falling asleep. What we believe is that through the resurrection, Jesus overcame death. He, he overcame death, right? And, and we talk about this almost every week. Uh, in spite of all our technological advancements, we have still not gotten close to overcoming death. You, you can get an iPod, 10,000 songs in your pocket, 10,000 out of 10,000 people will die, right? It, it's just the facts of life. And yet, we believe that Jesus has the power to overcome death. And he also has the grace to gift that gift to those who trust and believe and identify in him. He's saying that those who have died and believed in him are not dying but merely sleeping and they will return one day. Now, for many of us, that that may sound a little bit weird, a little bit bizarre, not like great news. Uh, And I think probably the reason that many of us are reluctant to see the good news and all that is that we're a very young church. Um, Probably few of you, have experienced the loss of a family member you were tremendously close to. A few of you have lost, uh, experienced the loss of a friend you were tremendously close to. Some of you have. Some of you have. You have this past year, and we weep for you, but few of you have experienced that. Some of you have experienced tremendous tragedy, though. The loss of friends, the loss of family. Some of you moms have lost children. And you long for that day where Jesus will return. It won't just be him returning. But mothers will reunite with sons. Children will reunite with grandparents that they held so dear. Friends will reunite with friends. It's good news for all of us because even if you haven't lost somebody that close to you, you will one day. We all will. It's just the facts. What Paul is saying is when the king returns, he will bring those believers with him as well. And it's tremendously good news. Third and finally, he says this. In the future, a kingdom will be established. Paul says the king will return and he will establish his kingdom here on earth. And look at verses 15 through 17. He says, we tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel. Do you see the the military language that's being used here? And with the trumpet call of God, 
First, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. We are a cause-driven generation, consistently clamoring for things to be made right again, aren't we? That's the reason we have petition after petition, movement after movement. We're always trying to end world hunger, poverty, uh, people being marginalized, all great causes. But the reality, if you study history, is things are as bad now as they have ever been. As much as death to genocide as there's ever been. As much death and exploitation to sex trafficking as there's ever been. As many wars as there's ever been. Is it hopeless? No, it's not hopeless. It's not hopeless because the king will return. He'll bring his kingdom and heaven will finally be on earth. The longings of our heart finally fulfilled. His victory, our victory. The king returning to finally make things completely right again. Jesus has risen in the past. He secured a hope for the future And that hope for the future is unshakable and unavoidable. And if you're in Christ or if you're thinking about being in Christ, his victory will become your victory. The longings of your heart finally fulfilled. Do you see the the beauty of this? If you're anything like me, you can lose hours of sleep to anxiety over the way a certain event that's unknown is going to unfold. If you're anything like me, you can feel like life is so fragile that that if I mess up this one little thing, everything is going to splinter and fall apart and I will tailspin into despair and failure and disappointment. If you're anything like me, you can mind map out, you know, this is going to go wrong and that means this will go wrong and this will go wrong and if this conflict goes wrong with this person, they'll talk to this person and this person and this person. Many of you know exactly what that's like. And here's the good news, that through the resurrection, a victory has been obtained that is unavoidable, and it is going to happen. It is absolutely going to happen. And the good news of this is that through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's nothing you can do. You cannot be incompetent enough if you're a believer to mess this up. The good news is through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, nobody, but nobody can attack you harshly enough, be cruel enough in order to mess this up. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing that can be done to you. The king will return. He will return with his subjects, and his kingdom will be established. His victory, our victory, the longings of our heart, finally realized through his work. And so we can rest And so we can trust and so we can believe. We can believe that through the resurrection, an unknown future has been made known. That as we face an unknown future, we can trust it to an all-knowing God who would die and resurrect on our behalf, even though we didn't deserve it. That through the resurrection, anxiety and fear dissipates because we finally face the details of of a future that are known. Mystery brings fear. Clarity brings confidence. And what Paul is laying out are the details of what the future holds through the work of Christ so that we can rest and we can believe and we can trust and we can sleep. Now, not only is he going to do this, but a natural question arises that we should be asking. What do we do while we wait, right? Because maybe that day isn't tomorrow. Maybe the day that he makes everything right isn't tomorrow. So what, what happens as we wait? And uh, he points our attention to this in the final verse of this passage. Um, it's probably my favorite verse in this passage, even though it would be 
probably the easiest one for us to overlook. In verse, look at verse 18. He tells us what we do uh, as we wait. Verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What, what do we do as we wait? You and I take up the ministry of encouragement. This reminds me of the first time I ever preached. Um, the first time I ever preached uh, came because I, I'd just become a Christian and I was starting to feel like, um, you know, maybe I should go into ministry. And I found a pastor who was close to the home that I grew up in. I talked to him and he was like super encouraging, super affirming. And uh, he said, we need to get you preaching, which was a little bit frightening. But at the same time, it was a little bit exciting because, you know, all of a sudden what started dancing in my head were just images of grandeur of me preaching on a Sunday morning and changing lives and just being unbelievable the first time I ever did it. And uh, this pastor did not let me preach on a Sunday morning. He actually connected me to a nursing home uh, in the neighborhood uh, where about a dozen 90-year-olds gathered for Saturday morning, yes, Saturday morning at 8 a.m. worship. Um, It was not exactly what I expected. And um, I'll tell you, it was the uh, hardest environment I have ever taught to or preached to in my entire life. Even harder than, you know, preaching in a room that smells a little bit like weed um, from the festival that's going on. Even harder than that. And I'll tell you why it was harder. Um, Because all these old sweet people were a little bit out of it. Um, You know, the worship guide, uh, I I called in to tell them my name so they could put it in the worship guide. And in the worship guide, they misspelled my name. They didn't say Brian Barley. They actually put it in as Brain Barley, like Brain uh, (laughs) Barley. And um, so I walk into the room. I walk into the room. And um, all the old ladies, you know, who think they're whispering, but they're talking really loud because they're deaf, um, are like, Brain, that's like such an unusual name. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not my name. Um, so, th- so that happened when I showed up. Uh, then, you know, I'm preaching, and uh, people are checking their watches. And this one lady checks her watch, but the only thing was that um, she was blind, so she couldn't check her watch. She actually wore a watch around her neck, and it was just actually a, a big plastic thing that had a giant button on it. And um, she would hit it, and then it would just yell out the time. So, like, I'm... <laughs> so I'm I'm in the middle of preaching, and all of a sudden it's like, beep, uh, the time is 10.47 a.m. I'm like, okay, I'm getting the hit. I'll land the plane. We'll end this. Um, it, was, it was terrible. Um, <laughs> it was really terrible. And um, I distinctly remember leaving there for the very first time. Um, they misspelled my name. They're checking their clocks in a very obvious fashion. Um, I'm awful. You know, like, that's not false humility. That is the worst sermon those people have ever heard. And they're in their 90s, so they've heard a lot of sermons. And that was the worst they've ever heard whatsoever. And um, I was depressed, if I'm just honest with you. I mean, I was just, I remember, you know, there's this tiny little room. I'm walking out. Um, this has gone horribly. I've thought this is what, you know, is my future. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Um, it's gone awful. You know, I'm thinking to myself, what do I have to do with my life now? You know, I'm asking the question that many of you are wrestling with. And um, I'll never forget, this, this old 90-year-old lady grabbed my arm. And uh, she, she stopped me and she said, I want you to know you did great today. She said, I, w- I want you to know that God used you today. She said, I want you to know that I, I really believe you have a future in this. And I don't know if she was just lying because she felt sorry for me. I mean, probably. Um, that's probably, she probably just felt tremendously sorry for me. But it was enough to get me to come back. And uh, I came back, and I tried again, and she was there to encourage me again, and I tried again, and she was there to encourage me again, and I tried again, and, and she was there to encourage me again. And what I learned on that day was that a single word of encouragement can change the future of somebody's life. A 
single word of encouragement can really change the future of somebody's life. She, she changed my life through her encouragement. And that's what Paul is challenging us to do. Is, as he says that as we wait, we encourage one another with these words. What, what you and I do, you who are a follower of Jesus, want to become a follower of Jesus, anxiously awaiting the day where Jesus will come and make everything right again as you take up the ministry of encouragement. And this is such good news for you. It's such tremendously good news for you. Here's the deal. Is that, is that too many of you consider yourselves just damaged goods, unusable. Here's the deal. In the city, a lot of you have wrestled through the darkness of depression, haven't you? You know what it's like to experience a sadness that's so overwhelming it's tangible and you feel like the entire world is falling apart. There's a couple ways you can interpret that. Either it's true or it's not true. And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's proclaimed that the world is not falling apart, but instead the the king is returning to make everything right again. And as you are encouraged and changed, and as hopefully your depression is fought and, and fades in light of that truth, you take up the ministry of encouragement as you look to the men and women around you who are suffering as you have suffered to tell them the king is coming, his kingdom will be established. For some of you, you've, you've worked through addictions. You're working through addictions. You will be working through addictions. There's a couple of ways to interpret your frustration and your disappointment and your guilt and your regret over the mistakes that you've made. You can look at it and say, you know, I'm just, I'm just damaged goods. I'm irreparable. I, I, I won't ever really make a difference in the lives of others. Or you can say through the resurrection, nobody is too damaged to be used by a living God. And so you take up the ministry of encouragement and you fight for others and you get involved in the lives of others to see resurrection truth break into the friends and the family who are, are struggling as you struggle. For some of you, you just are working through good old-fashioned, Garden variety, fear, anxiety over the future. And you can either just say, that's just the way it is, and you can retreat into isolation, and you can say, this is inevitable, and I'm just going to try to numb myself from the pain. Or you can feel your feelings, you can face your fears, you can fight. See the truth of the gospel break into those around you. But Paul is saying, as we wait, we take up this ministry of encouragement because we believe that a single word of encouragement can can change the future of somebody's life, that you can change the future of somebody's life. And as we wait, we wait with eager anticipation for the king to return to make everything right again, knowing that an unknown future has been made known through the risen Christ. That we no longer face mystery, that fear is dissipated, but rather his clarity brings confidence and that death has been transformed from being a disease to, a, to avoid at all costs. It is the mere initiation into the life to come. And so we can consequently live different tomorrow. And the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that, until Jesus returns and makes everything right again. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much. That you are not dead, but you're alive. And because you're alive, you're changing lives. And because you're changing lives, we gather in this room as the legacy of your gospel work. And so, God, I pray that as we struggle through just the typical fears that keep us up, to, keep us up at night, the fears that will keep us up tonight, 
anxieties over a relationship, anxieties over somebody in our family, anxieties just over the unknown, anxiety over being anxious, that these fears over the future will be filtered through the future that was secured 2,000 years ago when you rose from the grave. God, I pray that you would do a work in this room by the power of your Holy Spirit to help us believe this, some of us for the very first time. We ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.